Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and welcome back to our series on points of view. I am very excited to have with us James Cerwillow, who is the author of this really amazing book called Metamodern Leadership, A History of the Seven Values That Will Change the World. And uh, James and I first met on, of course, LinkedIn, and we were talking about metamodern leadership as I've read a couple of other books and reviewed them along this vein. And he said, would you like to read my book? And I said, okay, send it over. And it was an odyssey through history, philosophy, and leadership theory and practice over the millennia. So it's quite a rich book, and I'm hoping our conversation will be equally as rich. I'm sure it will be. And a little bit about James. He is a speaker, author, as I mentioned, and leader in a Fortune 15 company. Somehow he manages to match his professional job with an in-depth analysis of leadership practice and philosophy across the ages. And I'm super excited to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, James. Thank you very much, Larry. Very good to be here. Now, do you go by James or Jamie or Jimbo or Jim Bob? <laughs> you can call me Jamie. Okay. Okay. Oh, good. We're on friendship basis now. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, our introduction was through the book. Why did you write, like, you have a full-time job, and then you write and research this amazing text, which is really in-depth. Why did you write it? What's, what's the interest behind it? Yeah, I know. It's insane. I well, I tell you what I did. It's it's been about seven years ago or so when I got my master's degree in uh, management and leadership, and um, you know I got to the program and I said, okay, great. You know the the leadership curriculum civically, I just felt myself kind of wanting for something. I, something was missing. I was like, yeah, I'm reading all this, and then so I from there I sort of delved into the the leadership industry books, which you would in the traditional industry uh, leadership books. And I said, okay, well, that didn't really do it for me either. That's not really what I'm looking for. So I really just spent two, three years or more just reading everything, kind of like my own little uh, PhD that I kind of staked out for myself. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where it would go. I didn't know what it would turn into. In fact, I just heard this today. Prudential Financial just did a survey with tens of thousands of people uh, talking about skills. And um, they said that, you know, everybody thinks that workers have anxiety about technology itself because that's really what uh, kind of sets the pace for, uh, you know, this exponential progress that we have. And they said that the workers really aren't, aren't scared and they're not anxious about technology. They're, they're anxious about skills. Um, they said 50% of workers are not sure in 10 years that they're going to be their skills are going to be viable. And I think that's a little bit of the anxiety that I was coming from, especially in the, in the realm of leadership. So I said, if I'm going to be some sort of expert surrounding leadership, I'm going to need to understand what it's going to look like in the future, 10 years from now. So I was trying to get as far ahead as I can. And it's, if you consult any type of futurism, which is just kind of a, a fancy way of sociology of uh, an interdisciplinary sociology of the future, kind of critical thinking to blend a bunch of different, I guess, academic genres together to try and predict something. Most futures will tell you that you can only really predict, and you can't predict anything. So you can only forecast, they call it, 10 years into the future. So I kind of said, well, I wonder if I can do this 
So I, I kind of broke down instead of instead of thinking about skills, and you you read it, John. So I, I kind of talk about the the seven values, and those yeah. can be really roughly translated to, to skills. And by skills, I, I mean that what are people going to need and want at work, and what's what what's it going to be like ten years from now? All right. So a couple of questions before you move on. Um, so I think you already answered it in your answer, in what you just said, but I'm just checking. So when you were studying leadership, you found there was something missing and that the conventional teachings around leadership were leaving you wanting. Was that because you felt there was a gap between what you were seeing happening in the, in the world around you and, and how these leadership philosophies and practices weren't meeting that? Or were you a bit more clear about what was missing? Well, you know, I think what I came to find out, and I didn't know if I... I knew it at the time, but I kind of eventually got to the understanding that there's some sort of developmental level of leadership when you really start to get into these, you might call them developmental philosophers, but yeah. developmental theorists concerning, you know, the ego or, you know, moral development or leadership development. Um, I think, uh, I think Jane Leninger, she studied ego development. And then like a Larry Colbert, he studied moral development. And then a um, uh, Bill Torbert, he studied um, leadership development. And you start to see all these models kind of stack on top of each other. Yeah. And wow, this stuff really, it's all kind of going in the same direction. There seems to be some sort of hierarchy when you put all this stuff together that leads to a higher level of leadership capability. Have you read along the lines of the developmental theorists? Have you read Spiral Dynamics, which is along the same lines? Yeah, yeah no, uh, I, I I have I do have a copy of Spiral Dynamics. My book's called uh, Meta Modern Leadership. Yeah, and Meta Modernism. I'm involved with the an email uh, list with a lot of very analytical philosophers, mostly Europeans, but Americans all over the world. And they really break this stuff down at a much higher level because they're very analytical and academic minded, much more higher level than I can do. Is this the but, integral theorist? Is that the distribution that well, you're part they're, of? They're metamodernists. They're metamodernists. Oh, metamodernists. Okay. They separate the in- integralists. So the, the integralists are mostly Americans that came from the school of Ken Wilber. Yeah. I think he's out of Colorado. So what you're describing from the spiral dynamic aspect, let me start it like this. The integralists say there's a quadrant of four that represents reality. So you have an I, a we, an it, and an it. And what I find fascinating is that if you look at the PricewaterhouseCooper model of 2030 leadership, leadership for the future, yeah, um, they say there's four worlds of work that we're going to have in the year 2030. And it pretty much goes right on top of that all quality, all quadrants, when I say all levels. (laughs) Uh, So you have a, you know, they call it the green, the Pricewaterhouse people call it the green quadrant. And that's kind of the human quadrant. And that's from the eye. And that's where, that's where all your leadership industry is. You know, that's where most of your, uh, all the ideas, all the empathy, the trust, the, you know, all the, all the virtue quality that you'll, you'll get reading the the traditional leadership industry books and that's great however i think the integralist would say well that's very true but you're still missing the other 75 percent of reality of the world 
you're missing the you know the economies of scale and the democracy and these different systems that are interacting in, in the business world. And uh, you're also missing the, the social connection, the social cohesion and the commons and the, the social responsibility and trust between people that you can't really measure. It's very hard to measure. And then you're also, and you're missing the quadrant, which Pricewaterhouse Cooper calls the red quadrant, which is innovation and technology. The it, the integrals would say, which is basically science. Uh, pretty simply. So I think that is a, a pretty good model to start to understand the you'll see a, you'll see the word steepled or steeple sometimes when dealing with um, forecasting. And it's basically uh, I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but science, technology, engineering, economics. Oh, steeple. Yeah. Science. Uh, Organizational. Media, yeah. Um, demographics. So all these other things come into play. If you want to start thinking about how to prepare properly for the future. So that's the integral approach and meta modern differs how from your point of view. <laughs> well, meta modernism. Now, let me, let me get back to integral real quick. And like you said, the spiral dynamics, it's sort of this idea that there's this double helix model. You got to go back in history, right? So you, and I'm not an expert in the integral world by, by any means, but I can, roughly translated. So you start this kind of spiral up from, let's just start from the traditional world, the, the pre-modern world, which is, I always kind of like to look at it prior to Francis Bacon, let's say 1600, or you can go back before the printing press, you know, hundred years before that, or the, the Renaissance even before that. But when we say traditional, everybody kind of understands what that is. The kings and the popes and the traditional world of the West, at least. And yeah. Hierarchy, command, so control, and that kind of thing. Command and control and everybody's, you know, all the, all the knowledge is locked behind the walls of the monasteries and the books. And most people can't read. Well, you start breaking down these structures of the, and, and it goes back even further than this. You can go back to tribalism. You can go back uh, to the, the actual axial age. Um, before that, when all these ideas started to, you know, the Buddha and Lao Tzu and Jesus and, and all these characters that became the moral foundations, the moral and religious foundations of societies all seem to spring up about the same time over the course of the world. And, you know, I think a lot of historians that, that study this kind of thing would say it's because it's, it's not by accident. It's because that, you know, only 10,000 years before that, we had learned how to plant a seed. And instead of becoming a, uh, a nomadic people of small tribes, we settled down, planted seeds, we're susceptible to conquest. By the time we discovered morality, it might have taken you know 10,000 years to condense it into some sort of written form. And you had these prophets from all over the world that could kind of spread that message. So the traditional society is the, the codification of those messages in written form. It's a religious idea, mostly, right? And the modern world starts to break down those religious fundamentals with, with science, with a new natural law. You know, I'm, I'm American, so I always kind of go back to the, the founding principles of America are modern principles. You know, nobody thought of anything like that before, to break away from the feudalism of the Middle Ages. By the time you get to, you know, some might say that it started with, with Kant around the year 1800, some might say it started with Nietzsche 
at the end of the 19th century. Some might say that it started in, in Paris in the 1960s with these postmodern philosophers, but something broke down the modern world into a, a postmodern, a new postmodern reality. I just wrote a piece last week about the sort of inflection point, the way I see it in culture in the United States was 1969, probably about this time, 50 years ago exactly, when we had Woodstock, when, when man first walked on the moon, when the, we saw the, the spectacle and the horror of the Manson murders on TV. And you, know, you can follow this, the Vietnam War, the president leaving office, quitting office about three years later, the post-industrial economy, the oil embargo, the crime-ridden communities of the 1970s. And, and it's just, it's a new world. It's funny because I, I remember having a textbook or two in college about the postmodern. And I remember flipping through it and I still had it at the house when I started all this craziness. And uh, when I was in college, I remember thinking, what the hell is postmodernism and why would I even ever care about this? You know? <laughs> um, Good question. <laughs> yeah. So academically, what it is is that you have these new these new structures, but also these new categories. So new things are popping up and you're being able to describe them in different ways. And so it's it's a deconstruction, it's called. When you deconstruct enough, when you deconstruct the modern um, experiment, the, the experiment of the enlightenment, it draws you into some sort of nihilism and, and cynicism. And that's really what happened because people no longer believed in, in the grand narratives of the modern world. And there was a, a, some sort of deterioration. And this lasted for quite a few decades um, with no discernible difference across the spectrum of culture. Sure, you know, we got PCRs and we got some, you know, the, the, the cassette tape became the CD. Um, but nothing really crazy happened until around the time of the year 2000, when we have this digital revolution. The same way in the end of the 19th century and early, early 20th century, that everything started becoming exponential, life, uh, life expectancies started to rise, medicines, working conditions. If you, if you look at any, any sort of graph from around that time, you'll see things started getting a lot better materially. Well, if you look at the, the exponential change that digitization caused within the last 20 years, I don't think people really understand how big of a change that's been. So it's kind of my quest to out from this postmodernism into a new metamodernism where we can start to construct a new sincerity. And that's where I got this idea from. It came from the art world and the, and the literary theory world of a new sincerity, a new hope, a new, a new faith, a new progress. So when you can start to come to those terms, now you're getting into the more the, the idea of what metamodernism is because you're negotiating the polarities that the postmodern caused. And then I can read that directly into a what some futures call a deconstructive polarization to create new leadership opportunities based on the 
the the technology and the uh, the new realities of the world. Deconstructed polarization that offers new opportunities. Okay, <laughs> that's a bit of a mindful and a <laughs> mouthful. <laughs> Can you give us yeah. an example of a deconstructed polarity that offers new leadership opportunities? I tell you what, there's not many, unfortunately. You know, I have a, an acquaintance, um, he's a psychologist, and uh, he's English, but he, he lives, in, uh, lives in France. And they're doing, um, I actually wrote a, wrote a piece about it in a, in a journal. So somebody actually uh, uh, allowed me to publish in a journal, but about the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to forget the name of this. But what what they're doing is they're trying they're trying to, and this is where things get sticky, and this is where linguistically you can revert back into a postmodern idea. Um, but they're trying to petition the governments to have mindfulness about the entire world. So they're trying to globalize and make sure that the governments are thinking about the full interdisciplinary systems and structures of the entire world, um, which is not something that the traditional nation state usually does because number one, you're usually going to, you know, there's sort of a sphere of, of empathy that humans just seem to naturally have where you're, you're going to be concerned with yourself first and your family second and your friends and community third. And you're going to kind of grow this, this circle of care that you have. And unfortunately, humans tend to have a, a limited sort of circle of care. But I think a lot of these, you know, I would call them these neo-Piagetian people who think about adult development say that there's not a limited circle of care that humans can offer. So that's the, be that's the best big global idea that I can, I can come up with right now. I mean, it can be done in, in very small ways just by, just by dialogue, essentially. So if, if, if I explore that a little bit, I think that's a useful paradigm to look at. As a, as a polarity, it's like if you're looking at that circle of care thing, so the circle of care about me, my family, uh, and survival versus the world, it seems like two poles, and it, would, it can also be a polarity, polarity where two opposites actually complement each other. And if you explore the dynamic within it, you can find that the more you care for the world, the more you care for yourself and your family. If I'm translating correctly what you've just said, that is an example of a polarity that has leadership opportunities in it. Whereas conventional leadership would just look at, no, it's me, my family, my country versus the world. That's nationalism sort of sits in that modernistic sentiment if you like it's kind of black and white ethos it's us against them it's the u.s against right. everyone else or it's england versus europe or whatever it is like those are some themes that have re-emerged and are kind of hanging on um and then then these met if you call them metamodernists or post-conventional leaders are saying there's the circle of care can actually continue to expand it doesn't have to be limited and what looks like opposites are actually supportive of one another it takes a giant leap of experience to get to that, though, because I think if you're in survival mode, where realistically you're looking at how do I feed my family, it's very difficult to expand your circle of care to the world when you're looking at your starving child. So there are some realities that, that people aren't 
aren't able to bridge just yet because of what they're facing day to day. No, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a very, you call it entitled way to look about, look at things. And that's why if you look at like the Inglehart Wetzel model, which is a sociologic model, it'll say that the, the more traditional, you know, if you're looking at an X, Y axis, the traditional versus the secular values, and then the survivalist values versus the kind of the self-actualization values on that axis, the upper right quadrant is going to be your Nordic countries, right? Yeah. They're the, they're the most progressive. They're the, most, they're the furthest ahead. Um, in fact, there's a philosopher, uh, Hansi Franek. I love Hansi. Yeah. He just wrote a book called The Nordic Ideology. Yeah, second. I just bought it. I haven't had a chance to read it. How is it? Oh, okay, good. Good. So that's something in the in the metamodern realm that people in in the Nordic countries have a um, are lucky to live in that type of that type of society. And you're not going to spring these ideas out of um, South Asia or Africa or the Middle East just quite yet. You know. I'm glad you're saying the word post-conventional leadership because that's exactly what Corbett talks about in his stages of, of leadership. So if you're first, the first stage of, of leadership, and he says that 5% of people um, are opportunistic. They're just, not, they're just out to win every battle and do what they can for themselves. A diplomat is the second stage, and that's about 12%. Um, that's going to be your, your yes men, your, your people who are trying to appease conflict. And then your largest two categories are experts and achievers. 38% of people are experts in the hierarchy of leadership, 30% are achievers. So most experts are going to get promoted to become an achiever because they can do it. They know how to do it. They can step into a position, help other people do it, and achieve the, let's call it the scorecard um, of what needs to be done, the, the dashboard. So you're talking what's that? you know, probably 80% of all your leaders are pre-conventional at this point. And this, this study was done 10 years ago. So uh, my guess would be that we've crept up a little bit. We're, we're a little bit better than we were 10 years ago, right? But stage five is 10% and that's the individualist. Um, that's a non-judgmental, creative, relativistic, aware of the post-modernization of the world, aware of these, these dichotomies that exist and how it's kind of, Cause such chaos, and they've kind of reached the, these first four levels, but they're not really sure how to implement it. And then you've got strategists, which are four percent. They can handle the the complexity, the ambiguity, um, the conflicts, and really the paradoxes that happen in these dynamic systems. Um, as soon as you can get to the level where you can you can kind of drive that change. You're fully in the the, the post conventional tier, I would say. And if you're sitting there, is that sort of where I think you need to sit at that level from a leadership maturity point of view to even be able to conceptualize some of the concepts you list in in your book in terms from a meta modern uh, leadership practice? Because a lot of the of the seven values, quite a lot of them, you need to be able to handle and, and surf that ambiguity and that complexity. And you don't get that until you're at least in the post-conventional stages. I would think you're correct with that. So I think this is a good segue into actually talking about your book. 
(laughs) (laughs) Which is awesome. I mean, and this is the conversation so far is representative of of your book in that in answering a question, we kind of have to pull the threads across a number of different spheres in order to understand context to get to the answer. It's not terrible. <laughs> I think it's, it exemplifies the kind of complexity that a meta-modern and a post-conventional leader needs to embrace because there are no simple and easy answers to complex questions. Uh, you know, like So the question, for example, should England leave the European Union is a complex question. And yes or no is re- so reductionist. And you can't just look at that from a simple point of view. I was just reading about that this morning. So coming to your book though, and you're talking about metamodernism is the promise of hope that gets us out of the pessimism and the cynicism that can emerge from post-conventionality. And you've come up with seven values. So funny, in my head, it was seven virtues. I don't know why it's stuck with seven virtues. <laughs> but seven. Interchangeable, sure. Okay. <laughs> They're not quite. Uh, in any case, seven values or because they're value, you call them values, but they're also skills. So I'm curious, my first question was around that. Why did you call them values instead of skills? Is that to elevate the, the principles around them? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I didn't want to call them skills because I think skills, there's got to be a belief system surrounding them. And I don't think there, I think there's a necessarily has to be a belief system surrounding skills. Okay. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. That's a really great answer. That makes a lot of sense. So there's a lot of, yeah. So there I go. My, the questions I prepared is like virtue six. and It's like value six. <laughs> and one of the ones that you list, which is, I think, goes to the heart of some of the issues in metamodern leadership is talking about leading from behind while dealing with the whole system. So as a post-conventional leader, a metamodern leader, understanding that all leadership questions sit within complex systems that have far-reaching threads, elements, pressures into it. What do you mean by leading from behind? I was trying to visualize that as I was reading through the book and what that actually looks like from a pragmatic point of view, uh, when you're trying to lead from behind, guiding people, organizations through, through and with a system. Yeah, this can be a very sticky idea, um, especially in the United States, because I think people see Barack Obama as a leader who led from behind. I don't think they saw him. A lot of people didn't see him as a strong leader in the same way that they see Donald Trump as a strong leader. It's kind of like a band leader versus a general, right? It's the, the command and control idea of, let's say, a, a large old organization. Um, it's going to have a lot of hierarchy. It's going to have, have a lot of um, levels of, it's going to have a lot of levels of leadership. You know, your, your newer modern organization, let's say like a Google or, or, or something in that nature, it's going to be less, less hierarchical, right? It's going to be more, uh, I guess you could say more egalitarian. Um, decentralized is probably the best way to put it. So there's going to be a lot more chaos than order. And chaos is what makes you go faster. But you lose your order and it's very confusing. If you don't have somebody, a a leader who can make some sense of it and divvy out that sense to where it needs to be. So it's kind of like being a conductor in an orchestra where you're, you're leading from behind because you're choosing the people 
to do these complex systematic requirements, be it their job or you know leadership of any, whatever the case. You're the person that's kind of directing things from behind, making sure people's making sure people are doing these highly complex and inter I'm 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 losing that word. But the um these systems that are connected. A regular command and control, a regular general is not going to be able to handle that complexity. They're just going to make a decision. And okay, that's fine, but you're probably not going to um, I tell you what, I'll think of it this way. There's a guy, um, his name's Nick Jenkins, really, really brilliant guy. And um, he talks about the chaos curve from order to chaos. And he's saying that you have to kind of step outside yourself to see the anger and anxiety when, when you need to change things. And most of the times it's going to be done with things like writing therapy, meditation, this kind of thing, because you're, you'll be you're stuck in some sort of reactive cycle. So it's really, it's a transformation curve to a next order. So you're going down the curve into the chaos and you need to reconstruct this order to reach the next level. I think that your conventional leader or your command and control leader pulls back and they're reactive. And they're, they're never going to be able to push through to get the speed and the capability that's going to be required now and in the future. I get it. So they pull back and they try and put some clear edges around the chaos as opposed to what a, um, a post-conventional or a meta-modern leader might do, which is zoom out to see the chaos and not to put hard edges around it, but to see what the dynamics are and those create the shape of it i guess not boundaries this is what i'm yeah. i'm thinking i'm thinking yeah, so, i'm talking as i'm thinking so like a a general would want to put hard borders around something and a orchestrator or a conductor conductor thank you a conductor looks at the chaos sees patterns in it and that emerges as a structure as opposed to trying to impose a structure on it is that I, sort of where I, you're getting I, at I, I mean, I'll say this to Michelle Gaffin. She's a cultural psychologist. She talks about loose cultures. What's her name? Michelle Gaffin? Gelfin, G-E-L-F-A-N-D. Okay. And she says that, you know, there's, there's just in societies and cultures, there's tight cultures, um, like, a, like a Germany or, or, or Japan where there's order, there's, there's self-control, there's discipline, there's exactness. Um, or you got a culture like a Nordic country, maybe, like, like the Dutch. They're cosmopolitan, they're imaginative, they're forward thinking. Mm. These are the things that make people go faster. Uh, but it also causes more chaos. Whenever we perceive danger, we tighten up and we stop. And, you know, if you want to talk about it in political terms, which I don't like to do, but you could even you could talk about it in biological terms, about personality. Um, there's sort of an eternal battle of, of chaos and order. Do you build a wall? Or do you break down the wall? <laughs> you didn't want to go political. There you go. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I think that's a really great visual and it's a good cultural marker across so many different nations. Are we building walls or are we bringing down walls? And uh, I think it's a good example. I mean, you brought it up, Obama versus Trump. Um, and you're saying 
you sort of alluded to that Obama leads from behind. He looks at the system and Trump doesn't. I have a question. Like, I don't want to get into the political discussion around that because I think it'll just reinforce my own perspective on it. What I am curious about it is I have a question about that. Like there's a surge of nationalism, both in the US and the UK and elsewhere. Do you think, have you seen examples where nationalism and protectionism actually serves a nation? Or do you think it's going backwards? Well, I think that getting back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, that there are, in many societies, there's sort of these developmental tendencies. I think one of the tenets of metamodernism is that you can't skip from modernism to metamodernism. A lot of people don't like postmodernism and for good reason. However, you got to understand what postmodernism is to get through it. And I think a lot of your uh, your public intellectuals, like a, let's say Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you're aware of Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Kind of a lightning rod. A lot of people like him and a lot of people both like him and don't like him. But he'll say something like, you know, the, the postmodern period should never have existed. Let's revert back to the modern world. Okay. You know, and it's like, well, you can't do that. It's a little reductionist and it's a little it's a little too simple. So it is, but I think people are attracted to that because there's something safe and comforting about traditionalism. And I think that's what the attraction is. There's something nostalgic about it that, that people enjoy. Absolutely. I mean, the cover of my book is the, the Janus, the Roman god uh, Janus, which is the gate of uh, the god of doorways or gates. And it's about you know this this time between worlds that uh, another postmodernist, Zach Stein, might say, you know, this this bridge between these two worlds that you always have to sort of connect in, in some way. So getting back to your question, there was a time where it was just going to happen that people needed nationalism to get through a, a period, kind of like what you're talking about um, regarding, you know, some people in some places are not going to pick up on a lot of uh, these ideas. And in fact, I, in the piece that I just wrote that I just referred to, I kind of made the distinction, hopefully I made the distinction between nationalism and patriotism of your country. So I think there's a, I think there's a linguistic simplification when we're talking about nationalism when used properly. I think there's some sort of instrumentalism that you're using nationalism for the wrong reasons. Not that you can't always want what's best for your country and always, you know, put your country ahead of other countries. But there's there's something there's something there in, in terms of nationalism um, that obviously, for good reason, in the 20th century, you learned is detrimental to lots of people and potentially deadly. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a nice distinction, though, nationalism versus patriotism. You can be proud of where you live and uh, what culture you belong to, and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the expense of other countries. And I think that's maybe that's the distinction. Nationalism is protection of one's own country at the expense of others. Uh, or there's, to the, there's a lot of talk about identity politics, especially uh-huh. from the right to the left. Yep. Well, I think nationalism is a type of identity politics from the right. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely a dialogue that you can have there to kind of uh, sort that out, I think. That's beautiful. 
I have a question, a clarification question around postmodernism and saying, you know, you have to understand postmodernism to get through it. It's not a very happy place to be. And we kind of, you kind of touched on it earlier in the conversation about postmodernism, where modernists had a view of the world that was structured and orderly. Postmodernism kind of explodes it and is problematic. What do you what do you see as difficult and problematic about postmodernism? Well, it's complex, it's academic, it's not serious. It can delve into the absurd. A lot of what my book is about, and a lot of what my research is about, is actually about generations too, which we haven't even really got to that yet. But I like to stick Generation X. I like to label them, even though it's not it's not exact, but they were raised in the postmodern, so they have a lot of attributes that are, are postmodern. And there's a lot of nihilism, cynicism. That's what you get the you know the early '90s slacker generation and the grunge, and the Simpsons, and these sort of um, these ideas. Or you know, I think um, I think Frederick Jameson, he was a, a postmodernist philosopher. He said it's the end of you know the end of the end of history, the end of Oh yeah. So it, it was it was a dread um, because when you can and I'll, I'll say this word again deconstruct or dissect things into your own subjective narrative and there's a loss of of objective truth then the world becomes absurd and you don't know what to do next and you, you feel like there's no there's no longer a north star. Yeah. Thank you. That helps so much. <laughs> and it describes, well, I'm Gen Xer, so it describes a lot of that teenage angst in a yeah. greater context. So let's talk about the values. I think <laughs> your whole book is about this. Um, and I've written, I've summarized them as you've written them. So there's art and ego, participation, social theory and cooperation, partnership, which is about the sharing economy. Psychology and motivation, which is personalization and knowing thyself. I'll phrase the question, and then I'll come back to reading the values. The question is, out of all of these values, which do you think is the fundamental one that's kind of like the kingpin one? If you needed to start in developing this value, is there one that's sort of a catalyst for the other? So that's the question. I'll just park that as I list them all for the listeners. So we're up to psychology and motivation, which is personalization. Philosophy and education, which is pedagogy, which is... um, teaching through problem solving, ecology and capitalism and understanding purpose and working through purpose, mythology and leadership in the power shift, which is the leading from behind principle that we just spoke about, and seven, globalization and democracy, a planetary shift. So those are all the fulsome values and leadership principles and practices. Which do you think is, is there a kingpin one that you'd start with? I never thought of that, but I'll answer it. I'll answer that question. Um, I think Bridging off from what we were just talking about Gen X, you know, I, I seem to align metamodern leadership with the coming, maybe you call it replacement of the, the baby boomer generation in the United States with the millennial generation. They're, they're about the same size. Millennials are a little bit larger. Um, boomers were born 1945 to 1964, roughly. And then Gen X is born 1965 to 1978, 79, somewhere around there. So then you've got the the millennials, maybe 1980 to 1997. So you've always got these 20 year generations, roughly, right? One of the, one of the grand ideas of this book is that 
kind of as we were talking about cultural eras before, as we, as we mentioned, the, the traditional or the, the medieval ages, the traditional world and the, the modern world and the postmodern world and the metamodern world, you see these these uh, shrinkings of these, these eras as we go. And right now what we see in, in these generational eras remain pretty static because I did a, uh, my undergrad I was, was in psych, psychology, um, early childhood development. So Jean Piaget, big guy in, in that field. And he said, there's four uh, stages to childhood, right? And all these Neo-Piagetians that we just we talked about earlier, Colbert and Levenger and Corbett and Keegan and all these guys, he's there, you know, he, he's the guy that, that's kind of started it all. So you have these static generational periods because that's how long it takes for somebody to develop. And it's basically uh, the time where people become adults and they start reproducing. So uh, biology and uh, is not going to change in a few thousand years for, for humans. So you have this sort of this collision happening with generations and cultural eras, and you have the Gen Xers, who are these nihilists, these cynics. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, obviously, I don't want to bring, uh, paint too broad a brush because a lot of a lot of them aren't obviously, but that's the environment that they grew up in. Where do you sit in in the in the generational spectrum? Well, I was born in 1979, so I kind of bridged the, the gap. Ah. Right? Um, okay. So what, what I've said before is that, and I, mean, and I am going to answer your question. Um, what I've said before is that the armor for Gen Xers was nihilism and cynicism. Sure. And the armor for millennials is purpose and meaning. Oh, that sounds so much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm a, my answer is purpose. It's yeah, right. Probably, probably the, the biggest value the most important value that millennials will have you know some sort of new post metaphysics some way to get past the materialism of the world um to hopefully reduce anxiety which is a huge problem for everybody now but especially for that generation so not that they're there yet but and they got a long way to go but i think if they can get to that point, that would probably be their the best thing for them, maybe. Okay, awesome. So that's the Gen Y. So Generation Alpha. So I'm thinking about my nieces and nephews just coming up to their 18, about to launch into the world of work. What do you reckon their armor might be? Or are they going to continue on the coattails of the Gen Ys with purpose? Well, I tell you, in fact, at work, I just watched this generational expert. Her name, her name is Jess Wiener. And she was talking about Gen Z or uh, Gen Z entering. Is that what you're referring to, Gen yeah, Z? Yeah, yeah. Different name, same uh, generation. And here's something crazy um, that she said is that she said something like uh, for those like 18 and under, 60, I think she said something like 61% of these kids would like to have a career in YouTube. So Generation Z or Z, um, 60% or more want a career on YouTube. Yeah, so she said that this generation is going to be the generation of order. They, they're going to want um, predictability. 
they're going to want a sort of a, a, a revolution of normalness, maybe. Yeah, um, right. If you want to get back to the, um, there, there, there's a um, a pair called uh, Strauss and Howe. They they wrote a book called Generations in the early '90s, and they said, and this is a this is a pretty cool idea. They said that there are four generational archetypes that repeat through history. And they went back in the United States to the 16th century. And they said these four general generational archetypes keep repeating. And it's not any sort of uh, crazy uh, metaphysics. He says that, you know, you got the static period of generations that last about 20 years. You've got the, the lifespan. A full lifespan is usually about 80 years. And all that firsthand information is pretty much gone in 80 years. You write so about this in the book, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so what you end up having is these four periods, these four archetypes recurring over and over again because people don't learn the lessons from the past. And if, and if they do... It's been too long ago for them to really comprehend it. So you might have a GI generation, the lost generation, the boomer generation, Gen X, Gen Y, and Gen Z. So if you go four generations back from Gen Z, you'll have their same archetype. So if you really want to know about Generation Z, go back to, what would, what would that be? Boomer parents, the parents of the boomers. Is that right? The boomers X, Y, Z. <laughs> so is it, it's either the boomers or the boomers' parents. Gen Z, Gen Y, Gen X, the boomers. So the silent generation, right? Silent, yeah. So that's the, the, that's the generation that lived through the Second World War, who were like that's adults. That's the generation who were sort of adults through the, through the Second World War. Second World War. And yeah, right. That, that generation, they're called the silent generation. You know, they were the they were the silent majority during the Vietnam. You know, they were sort of the older older folks um, during the Vietnam War, and they were Nixon's silent majority, right? They were the people that turned out and voted, kind of riding the the surplus of the post war quietly. They weren't they weren't a large generation, but they never obviously they never revolted. Uh, there was no revolution like the Boomers. And they never, you know, I'm sure that a lot of them went to uh, Korea uh, during the Korean War in the United States. But there was nothing, you know, the, the 1950s in the United States was probably their kind of heyday. And it was pretty quiet. So maybe that's the, the legacy of the, this new generation. You know, who knows? It's awesome. A, it's a theory, pretty, pretty cool idea to think about. That is a really cool idea. And I think it's a wonderful, optimistic way to finish the podcast. Um, your book is amazing. And I highly recommend it to anybody who wants to have a really in-depth look at the promise of the future of leadership and the values that we can pick up and express and work with and uh, make use of as we deal with complexity and what we've got on our plate right now as leaders. Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. That's good. And if people want to catch up with you, you have a website, jamesserwillow.com. 
com. Is that correct? Okay. And also, I'm going to put a whole bunch of the references that we talked about on the show notes page, which will be at zoeyrouth.com slash podcast slash metamodernleadership. So a lot of the book references that you mentioned will be up there, as well as links to your book, your website, the seven values themselves. And yeah, I hope lots of people explore metamodern leadership. Thank you so much for your time. Wow. Thanks a lot, Zoe.